live through it. The scripture reading for today is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I uh, recently read an interesting article about a meeting that was held in 1923, the year 1923, in a hotel in the city of Chicago, where nine of the world's most wealthiest men gathered together to kind of talk and discuss through things. Now, each man at this meeting was sort of at the top of his own world, right? All sorts of fields, everything from uh, Wall Street to steel to gas to banks, all sorts of backgrounds and fields. And though they represented different sectors, when it came to money, these men had much in common. The first thing was that they were all brilliant. I mean, they knew all the secrets of investing and creating revenue. They were also influential, right? So when they said things, people listened and people started doing things. They were influential. And they were all also exceedingly rich. I mean, there was virtually nothing that these men didn't own or that their money couldn't buy. They were exceedingly rich. But all of these men, these nine men who gathered in that hotel on that morning, also had one more thing in common. Within the next 25 years, each one of these men would lose everything that they owned, each one of them. I mean, the stories of these nine men are just incredible. Let me share a few with you this morning. There was Charles Schwab, the president of the largest independent steel company, who for the last five years of his life lived on borrowed money and then finally died bankrupt. There was Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, who went to prison for embezzlement. There was Howard Hobson, the president of the largest utility company, who went insane and died in a sanatorium. And then there was Jesse Loriston Livermore, who was a, a Wall Street tycoon. And the, stor the story about Jesse is that one day, about a week after Thanksgiving in the year 1940, he walks into a hotel in the city of New York. He walks into this hotel, walks up to the bar, sits down, has a couple of drinks. And while he's sitting there, He's writing something down on a notepad. He then gets up, walks into the coat room, sits down on a stool, and shoots himself in the head. Jesse was 62 years old, and he left behind $5 million after being worth over $100 million just a few years earlier. The note that he left behind was actually written to his wife, and this is what it said. It said, my dear Nina, can't help it. Things have been bad with me. I am tired of fighting. 
can't carry on any longer. This is the only way out. I am unworthy of your love. I am a failure. I'm truly sorry, but this is the only way out for me. Love, Lori. Reading story after story about these nine men was just heartbreaking to me. I mean, it seemed like these men who seemed like they were living the American dream ended up with lives that looked more just like a nightmare. It was crazy to see this happen. And when you read these stories, you can't help but notice just how life-consuming money tends to be, both by its presence and by its absence. So here's the thing, whether or not you have money, right, whether you have money or you don't have money, how you view money will dictate the way that you live your life, right, whether you have it or not. Because most probably, most likely, none of us in this room will amass as much wealth as these nine men did in that hotel that day. But there's no reason why a wrong understanding of wealth couldn't have the same power to consume our lives as it did those men. And that's why I'm grateful that the Bible doesn't kind of skirt around this issue of money and wealth. It actually deals with it head on. In fact, I was kind of amazed to see how much the Bible addresses this idea of money and wealth. You see, in the Bible, there's about 500 verses that are written just on this topic of prayer. There's about 500 also verses written on the topic of faith. But there are over 2,000 verses that are written in the scriptures that deal with just money and possessions. Jesus was also in particular, particularly discussed money. He was also one that talked about money often. In the Gospels are recorded 38 different parables that he told. Out of those 38 parables, 16 of those parables had to deal with how we are supposed to deal with or imbue money. Jesus talked about money. And so if God's word was so committed to talking about this topic of money, I think it's something that's worthy of our attention as well this morning. So what we want to do this morning is to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. Now, if you've been here long enough with us, you know that we've been kind of trekking along through this letter called 1 Timothy for some time now. And we've been calling this series, What is a Healthy Church? And so week after week, we've been looking at this church in the city of Ephesus, kind of figuring out what this church is all about. Now, this church was a church that started off thriving. It was a thriving church. I mean, lives were being transformed through this church. People of all sorts of backgrounds were coming to know Jesus and trusting in him as their savior. But then almost like these nine men who met at that hotel that day, this once prosperous, thriving church ends up in ruins. And you sort of ask yourself, like, what happened? I mean, what happened to this church where it went from being thriving to now in ruins? And so for the last few months, we've been just kind of looking through this letter, trying to better understand what happened, what led this church to destruction, and then what needed to be done in order to restore this church back to health. And so after months of considering this week after week together, today we have actually reached the final sermon in this series. And so Paul, who is a follower of Jesus, is penning these words to Timothy. Timothy is this young pastor who's been brought into this church in Ephesus to sort of clean up this mess of a church. And Paul is writing this letter, the last few sentences of this letter to Timothy, and the instruction has to do with the topic of money. 
You see, actually, this isn't the first time that Paul talks about money in this letter. Just a few verses earlier, in the same chapter, Paul discusses the topic of money. But these two passages actually differ from one another in that the first passage was actually dealing with Christians who want to be rich. Christians who want to be rich, whereas this passage is dealing with Christians who are rich. So in other words, Paul is using chapter 6 to address two groups of people, the, the Christian have-nots as well as the Christian haves. And so what Paul's hope is to, is to be able to give each of them, all of them, a God-glorifying, God-centered view of money and wealth. And so that's our hope for us this morning as well, is that as we continue to look through this passage and read what 17 through 21 says, that we too would receive a God-glorifying, God-centered view of our wealth and of our money. In order for that to happen, we need lots and lots of help. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we look to his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that when we look into your word, we're not simply looking at words on a page, but your scripture tells us that the word is living and active. The scripture is inspired by you. You are the one that brought these words together. And the same spirit who has inspired these words is a spirit who is able to illuminate our minds with these words. And the same spirit who illuminates our minds is the one that is able to convict our hearts and the same spirit who is able to convict our hearts, we depend on him to transform our lives. And so this morning, as we gather and as we look at this passage together, I pray that your spirit would do all of that for us. That we would not simply be hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves, but God, that you would make us doers, and we are in need of your strength and your grace to be able to do that. Would you help us this morning? We pray all of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm really grateful for this passage because I think sometimes Christians are sort of unsure as to what God thinks about wealth or about money. And sadly, I think some of that comes from, some of those extremes come from the fact that they've heard extremes from the pulpit itself. You see, what you are taught about money can really sound polar opposite depending on who you're listening to, right? Because on one end, we'll have some preachers who say things like, you're a child of the king. You're a child of the king. The king owns everything. I mean, why would the king want his children to live in poverty and impoverished? Why would he want that? It's ridiculous. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want your king to, to think that way. The reason why you don't have is because you don't ask. And so some preachers say, listen, God wants to bless you with health and wealth and prosperity, and the reason why you don't have those things in your life is because you're not asking him. You just need to ask. And then we read the Bible for about two, two and a half seconds, and we find out that health and wealth and prosperity are actually not at all what God promises his children. In fact, suffering is more of a promise than prosperity is. And so on one side, you have these prosperity preachers. But then on the other end, you have some who teach that being a Christian requires you to be poor, that you have to be poor in order to be a Christian. And so they'll use passages like Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler. And he's talking to this rich young ruler, and he says to them, and they say, listen, don't you see what, what Jesus said to this man? 
he said to them, he said to him, go and sell all of your possessions and give it away to the poor. And that's exactly what he expects of us as well. And so people begin to think, listen, if I'm not poor, then I can't be a Christian. And the only problem with that is that that too isn't right. It's not at all what Jesus teaches every single person that he comes across. Like, for example, take John chapter 4. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is meeting with this woman at the well. And so he meets with her and he starts asking her a bunch of questions. He starts asking her questions and in the conversation, he starts to realize that this woman is a woman that just has had some issues with her relationship. She's kind of gone from man to man to man to man and now she's with the man that's sort of her husband but not really her husband, not really sure what's going on there. And so she's talking to this man, I'm sorry, so Jesus is talking to this woman, figuring out all these things and the thing that Jesus doesn't tell this woman is to go and sell all your possessions and to give it to the poor. Instead, what Jesus says is go and call your husband. In other words, Jesus is so intimately aware of our heart that he is able to address us individually. You see, while God does tell some people to sell their possessions and to give it to the poor, it's far from being the universal command. Poverty or the loss of all of your riches is far from being a universal command. And so this is the question. If it's not prosperity and it's not poverty, the question is, what does God have to say to Christians about wealth? I think this passage that we're looking at this morning tells us basically three things, three things that he wants to talk to us uh, and teach us about wealth. I think the first thing that he wants to tell us is that our gifts should lead us to our giver. Our gifts should lead us to our giver. The second thing is that our giver should lead us to give. Our giver should lead us to give. And then the final thought for us this morning is that our greatest gift is the giver himself. Our greatest gift is the giver himself. And so we want to spend this morning kind of breaking this down together and considering what Paul is teaching us through this passage. So let's begin with this first thought, our gifts lead us to our giver. I'm going to read verse 17 for us again. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I think it would be helpful for us that before we begin taking a look at this passage, it might be helpful for us to define what we mean by the word rich. You see, because this is one of those passages where you read this verse, and almost the automatic instinct is to say, this doesn't apply to me. Like, this isn't really talking to me because rich? I I'm not rich. This doesn't really talk to me. And that's because the word rich can sometimes feel pretty relative, right? Because white-collar workers think that musicians and athletes are the ones who are rich. And blue-collar workers desire white-collar money. And part-time workers would kill for blue-collar money and so on and so forth. And so the idea of being rich can be so relative sometimes that our tendency is to often not see ourselves as falling into that category of being rich. So the question is, how do we define the word rich in this passage? A pastor named John MacArthur kind of gives us a helpful definition, and I want to share that this morning. 
It says, to be rich is to have more than the mere essentials of food, clothing, and shelter. In today's terminology, it means to have discretionary dollars. In other words, being rich means that all of your money isn't just simply being used to buy what you need, but when you're rich, you also have money to buy what you want. Now, granted, right, some folks are able to buy more of what they want than other folks, but if all of your income isn't just simply being used for food and for shelter and for clothing, then to some extent, you qualify as being rich. Now, you may be hearing that this morning, and you may be saying, that sounds way too simple, right? That sounds like way too simple of a definition. But I think sometimes it's sobering for us to, for us to know just how true that definition really is. I don't know about you, but I often forget, because my eyes are often not seeing, the fact that just the basic essentials is a huge struggle for much of the world. It's true. 1.3 billion people live on less than one US dollar a day. 1.3 billion people. 2.6 billion people, they lack basic sanitation. 2.6 billion people. 1.2 billion do not have adequate housing. 20,000 children every single day, 20,000 children every single day die of preventable diseases every single day. And so unless we dismiss these things as just facts and figures that really don't mean anything, what it does mean to us is that we are indeed rich. In a very real sense, you and I are rich. We qualify, we fall into that category. Absolutely, some are more rich than others, but we are all rich. And so since this passage does apply to us, let's take a look at what Paul is saying. And maybe it's helpful for us in the beginning to kind of see what Paul isn't saying. You have to notice that he doesn't say right off the bat that being rich is a sin or that Christians need to get rid of all of their wealth and and take up poverty. He doesn't say that. God in his providence, and I need you to hear this, God in his providence has blessed some folks with comfortable circumstances. He really has. He has blessed some people to be comfortable. Some of us own our own homes. We wear nice clothes and we enjoy nice things. That is not a sin. And that's not even what Paul is addressing here this morning. Instead, what Paul is concerned with in this passage is the way that rich people, you and I, tend to view our wealth. He warns against two attitudes this morning. First, he warns against a false sense of importance developing a false sense of importance. And the second thing he warns against is a false sense of security. Verse 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Paul says that rich people tend to find their importance in their riches. It's just what happens. Like a few years ago, uh, there was a story where the iPhone was becoming a common phone in the market, right? So when it first came out, it was sort of something that a handful of people or a few hundred thousand people had. But several years later, uh, more and more people were having the iPhone as a phone that they were using. And so because of that, someone was thinking, you know, we need a way to kind of differentiate 
the rich iPhone users from the common iPhone user. So a man named Armin Heinrich developed an app. He developed an app called I Am Rich, okay? He developed an app called I Am Rich, and this is the thing. The app didn't do anything besides display this red jewel on your screen. That's all it did. You click on the button, and up uh, pops up this red jewel that comes on your screen, and that's all it did. And he charged a hundred, I mean, sorry, $1,000 on the app store, $1,000 for this icon that blows up to show a red jewel on the screen. But here's the kicker. People started buying it. People started buying this app. This app that did nothing besides show a red jewel on the screen, people started going to the app store, putting in their password, hitting install, and seeing it coming onto their iPhone. Being identified by their wealth was so important for some people that it led them to pay $1,000 for an app that ultimately does nothing and most likely no one will see on your phone anyway because who's looking at your phone to see this jewel in the first place? It's crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts what riches can, people, can lead people to do, and, but it's at the heart of what Paul is teaching here. He's saying riches can lead people to conceit and to pride and cause them to do some crazy things. But here's the thing, right? It's not even just the idiots that bought the iPhone app that are conceited and prideful. My heart can be exactly the same. My heart can be exactly the same. I'll tell you a story. So when I was in high school, uh, I used to drive this ugly, like, I wish there was a better word that I could use to tell you how ugly. I mean, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, ugly, <laughs> is how ugly my car was. It was a Mazda protege. Uh, I think they actually stopped making that car because it was just too much of a distraction on the road. People were just like, what is this ugly car doing on the road? And accidents all over the place. So they pulled it off the market. Now, hopefully none of you have a Mazda protege. Uh, <laughs> but if you do, I know what you're feeling right now. I, I understand. And here's the thing, to make my Mazda protege even uglier, my Mazda protege was Gumby Green. If you're old enough to think back to Gumby and the character, and you can imagine what uh, his color was, that was the color of my car. I don't know what we were thinking in buying that car, why we thought that might be an attractive color to buy, but we had a Gumby Green Mazda protege. And on top of that, the Mazda protege boasted a whopping 90 horsepower. <laughs> this thing was slow. It was ugly. It was green. It was slow. I hated being seen in that car. I hated it. So much so that I got those win windows tinted. <laughs> real dark, too. Like, real, real dark. So there was this Gumby green, ugly Mazda protege with this crazy tint on it so that nobody would be able to see who's inside. And not only that, I would even lean back sort of enough where you can't see me in the front window and you can't really see me in the back. I was in that bar area right in the middle so that even if somebody pulls up and looks in, you kind of see, like, it looks like the car's driving by itself. Uh, but I was intent on not being seen in that car. And that's how I spent a big portion of my life. But then guess what happens? <laughs> I graduate from undergrad and I go and buy an Audi A4. I buy an Audi A4. 
And this one wasn't Gumby Green, it was Brilliant Red. And this one didn't have 90 horses, it had a turbo engine with over 200 horses. And guess what? Tinning those windows never crossed my mind. I was driving, my windows were down, my sunroof was open just to get some extra sunlight through. People were able to see who was driving that car. Now, here's the thing, never, ever did I ever say out loud that driving the Audi A4 made me somehow a little bit more important than somebody else. But I knew that when I pulled up to a Gumby Green Mazda protege right next to me, I knew that I was more important. I did. I I'm not even just saying that as a sermon illustration, I'm being honest. I knew in my mind that there sits a loser in this ugly car while I'm driving this brilliant red Audi A4. That's the way that our mind works. It's amazing what our possessions and our wealth can cause us to believe about ourselves. You see, it's no different whether we're talking about the iPhone app or your car or even your clothes. We who are rich can find a false sense of importance in our riches. We really can. And we can easily make our possessions the source of our identity. And so what Paul is telling us this morning is, Listen, you need to tell the rich not to be haughty. Don't be conceited. Don't be prideful because you can't find your identity in your riches. But it's not even just identity. We can also equate our riches to our security as well. Hear what verse 17 says. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You see, while we are rich, it's often easy for us to forget just how fleeting our riches can be. Just in these last several months, we as a church have gathered together Sunday after Sunday and prayed for thousands of people. We have prayed for thousands of people who have literally gone to sleep rich and woken up poor because of tornadoes and storms and all sorts of things that have happened in their life. Consider that. Imagine that. I mean, no one goes to sleep expecting to wake up poor the next day. Nobody does that. But it happens. And it happens in all sorts of ways. Maybe it's not a tornado or a flood. Maybe it's a lost job that you're not expecting because of a bad economy. Or an unexpected event that happens in your life that causes all of your riches to disappear in one moment. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, if you're placing your hope on riches, that's a bad idea. Because riches could literally be here one day and gone the next. It really can. And it's not just that. He's also saying, listen, placing your hope on riches is a bad idea because our riches can truly never satisfy us as much as we want it to. Why do you think it is that someone who owns an iPhone 5 and is using it for just a month and a half is dying for the iPhone 5S to come out to see what that's like? In just a month and a half, the, old, the phone becomes old. Or why is it that someone who buys a brand new car spends every day washing it and vacuuming it to make sure that it looks pristine, and then just in six months, it looks like trash? It's because our riches will never satisfy. Our riches will never satisfy because there will always be bigger and better things. There will always be bigger and better things. That's the world that we live in. 
But here's what we need to understand. What Paul is saying to us here is that is not that the desire for identity and security is the problem, right? It's not the, it's not the desire for identity and security that's a problem because those are actually right desires. Those are desires that we were created to have and to want. The problem comes when we try to find our identity and our security in riches. And hear this. The reason why that's a problem is because when we find our identity and our security in riches, we're actually selling ourselves short. It's not just because it's a bad thing to do. We're actually losing out on life and joy by finding ourselves in lesser things. Because as Christians, the source of our identity and our riches, or our source of our identity and our security, is much more glorious than what toys and trinkets are able to offer us. Here what Paul says again. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What Paul's saying here is, listen, if we had a right understanding of our riches, it wouldn't lead us to have an elevated view of the gift, or even an elevated view of ourselves, it would lead us to have an elevated view of the giver. If you and I truly, if you and I truly, and it wasn't just lip service, if we truly believed that God owes us nothing, the creator of the universe owes us nothing. He doesn't, he isn't obligated to give us anything. He doesn't owe us anything, and yet he has given us everything. He has given us everything and given it to us for us to be able to enjoy. If we truly believe that, that instead of using our riches to gain praise from people, our riches would lead us to give praise to the giver. That's what it would do. And instead of finding our security in the things that belong to us that are here today and gone tomorrow, we would find our security in God, who we belong to, and has promised us that he will always be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what Paul is saying to us this morning is that our gifts shouldn't lead us to ourselves, but to our giver, who richly provides us, provides us with everything to enjoy. Identity and, and security, the desire for those things, is not the problem. It's just that we're selling ourselves short. True identity and security are found in God alone. Our gifts should lead us to our giver. Let's look at verse 18 and 19. It says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, the second thing that Paul is trying to teach us here is that Unless we truly believe verse 17, we won't be able to live out verse 18 and 19. In other words, unless we realize and trust in the generosity of our giver, we won't be able to find the freedom to be generous ourselves. It just won't happen. And so Paul's second point for us this morning is that our giver, considering our giver, leads us to give. Our giver leads us to give. That's such a huge point that we need to hear and to believe this morning. Because you see, as Christians, it's not just that we have some kind of moral obligation to be generous, 
or that we're supposed to be doing it out of guilt or even in an attempt to try to earn favor from God. That's not it. None of those things are the reason why we are called to be generous. Instead, we are led to be generous in response to the way that God has been generous to us. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus, for whom everything was created, and to, him, to whom all things belong, who enjoyed the fullness of relationship with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit, and who dwelled in the heavenly realms, that Jesus set aside his riches. He set aside his riches and entered into this earth in order to become like one of us. And in becoming a man, he took on poverty. He took on poverty by dying on the cross in order that you and I, who were spiritually bankrupt and in debt to God, could have the fullness of relationship now with God the Father and that we would receive the exceeding riches of his grace through his Son. The gospel speaks of generosity. The gospel tells us of this rich God who decided to set aside his riches and take on poverty so that those who are poor can become rich in him. The gospel speaks loudly of generosity, and that gospel needs to change and transform our lives. If we're simply trying to be generous to earn favor from God, if we're just simply trying to be generous because we feel guilty and so we have to drop a few dollars into the basket, I think we've missed the point. The gospel speaks of generosity, of a generous God who was rich, who became poor, in order that we who were poor could become rich. That's the gospel. And only when we become people who believe that and trust in that will it lead us to be generous ourselves. Martin Luther was once quoted as saying, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. I think, unfortunately for Christians, the conversion of the purse tends to be the slowest of the conversions in our life. And sometimes even the conversion that's seen as optional or just kind of a choice that we can make. But the gospel tells us that that's not true. Our purse needs to go through a conversion only because the gospel shows us that there is generosity that's part of this gospel. Listen to a quote from a book called Living Now. It says this. It says, during the Crusades, it is said that the mercenaries were baptized holding their swords above the water. So they would be fully immersed underwater and yet be holding their swords above water. And this was because they did not want Christ to control their swords. And today, so it is with our wallets. Perhaps we should hold our wallets above water when we are baptized. But Jesus says, we cannot serve both God and money. Money is dangerous. If you do not master money, it will master you. 
you know, sometimes we can hear what is being said right now and kind of just feel like, what's up with God? Like, why is he in such a need of my money? What is it with this God? Like, why does he want my riches, my wealth so much? And you see, it's not that God is in need of our money. The scriptures tell us, and it is true, that he owns everything. Everything belongs to him. He is not in need of our money in the least bit. Rather, in God's economy and by his design, God generously blesses his children in order that they would generously bless those who are in need. That's God's economy. That's God's design. It's not that he's in need of our money, but that he has designed us to be generous because of the fact that we ourselves have received generosity from the Lord. And when we begin to believe that gospel, it frees us to be generous in all things, to generously share of our wealth so that the physical needs of those who are around us could be met in the same way that God has met our physical needs. That we begin to be, be generous in, in the way that we share the gospel so that the spiritual needs of those who are around us can be met just as God has met our spiritual needs. Our giver leads us to give. It's interesting to see how Paul ends this section. Look at verse 19. It says, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, Paul says that when we live generously, we're storing up for ourselves treasure. When we live generously, we're storing up for ourselves treasure. And that seems like a little bit of a, a hard verse for us to be able to understand. It seems a little unclear as to what Paul is trying to say here. What we know that he is not trying to say is that being generous provides us with eternal life. We know that he's not saying that because the Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace and through faith, not by our works, not by the things that we do. Salvation is a gift from God, a generous gift from God. And so you and I can't give away enough things to somehow earn salvation. But instead, what Paul is saying here is that when we live generously, it shows us where our heart is. When we live generously, it shows us where our heart is. Being generous confirms the fact that our hope is not found in ourselves or in our possessions, but in God. That you and I are so convinced of the treasure that we have found in Jesus that we don't see it as loss to part ways with the things that we own or that we possess. Jesus is so valuable to us that everything else begins to pale in comparison to him. And since you know that your greatest treasure, Jesus, will never leave you nor forsake you, you can easily be generous with your earthly treasures. So I think the Lord is asking us this morning, what does your generosity tell you about your view of Jesus and the gospel? Again, we would, it would be a shame for us to simply just be hearers of the word and not be doers. I think what the Lord is asking us this morning is, what does generosity look like in your life? If there's a lack of generosity, what is it telling you about 
your understanding and your view of Jesus and the gospel. And he's not even telling you that in order to guilt you up so that you'll drop in more money. Instead, he's saying, have you taken hold of the generosity that the Lord has demonstrated to you in his son? Because if you have, it will inevitably change the way that you are generous yourselves. Our giver leads us to give. And that brings us to the last point for this morning. Our giver leads us to give because we realize that our greatest gift is the giver himself. We realize that our greatest gift is the giver himself. Verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now, if you've been studying 1 Timothy with us for some time now, you know that Paul has this tendency to sort of uh, completely change the topic, a topic in the middle of a thought, right? So just a chapter ago, we were uh, hearing from him. He was talking to us about what it looks like to choose pastors. And in the middle of that, he goes, oh, yeah, and make sure you drink a little bit of wine uh, to help you with your stomach problems. And you kind of go like, Wait, what's going on here? Because I thought we were just talking about pastors and how to choose pastors. Why are you talking to me about wine and my stomach issues? And at first class, uh, this passage or this, these two verses sort of feels that same way because Paul's been all this time talking about riches and generosity, and then all of a sudden he comes out with these two verses. But when we read it closer, we realize that what Paul's trying to do here is to solidify Timothy's understanding of everything that he has just taught. So Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Paul's saying, with all of this conversation that we've just had about the gifts that God has given to you, make sure you guard the greatest gift that God has given to you, the deposit that was entrusted to you. Paul is referring to the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. The greatest gift that God has ever given to Timothy, above all the riches that he has and enjoys, is the gospel. And so Paul's saying, Guard it. Guard the gospel. With all of your life, guard the gospel. Because no matter what else you lose, you must not lose Jesus and his gospel. For the gospel, the gospel leads you to Jesus. And Jesus is indeed the greatest gift that God has ever given us. This week, I found myself working at a library uh, much of the week, kind of prepping for this sermon. And when I was sitting there, I was sitting at this table, and I, I had a, a, a bunch of books on the table. I had a notepad to kind of write down some th- uh, thoughts. I had a pen on the table, and then I had my computer. And every time I stepped away from that table to get a drink or go to the bathroom, no matter what, I would always take with me my computer, every time. Because if there was anything that I was willing to lose from that table, my computer wasn't it. Because you see, my books and my pen, they all pale in comparison to the value and the worth of my MacBook. And so I was intent on guarding it. I was intent on guarding it. And I think what Paul is saying here is basically the same thing. When we realize the value and the gift that we have in Jesus and his gospel, we will guard it. Because no matter what else you give away or what else you lose, 
you still have your greatest treasure, and that's Jesus, the giver himself. In fact, Paul goes on to cite what happens when you are committed to guarding anything less than Jesus and the gospel. He tells a story about some people who spent their entire lives guarding worthless things, irreverent babble and knowledge. They were all about having these nonsense conversations and, and trying to have knowledge that was really just not knowledge. And in doing so, they swerved from the faith. In other words, these men were intent on guarding things that were so worthless that they lost sight of their greatest treasure, Jesus. It's sort of reminiscent to what Jesus told us in the gospel. He said, what profits a man to gain the entire world but to lose his soul? In the end, it is Jesus and his gospel alone that is able to lead us to joy and to life. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is guard it. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel because it's for your good and it's for the good of those in the church at Ephesus. In it, they will find true joy and true life. Our greatest gift is the giver himself. And so with that, we ask you to reach the final sentence of this letter. The final sentence of this letter says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. It sort of feels like an abrupt ending to this long letter. Because in these six chapters, Paul has discussed all sorts of things about how this church is supposed to be repaired and brought back to life. He talked about the need to fight false teachers and the need to train ourselves for godliness and the need to have right living and right teaching and the need for right relationships within the church and the need to fight the good fight and the need for generosity. And I imagine that when Timothy gets to the end of this letter, he's read through these six chapters of this letter and he's feeling a little bit overwhelmed. He's looking at the contents of this letter and he's thinking to himself, this is all a little bit too much, right? It all seems a little bit impossible. I mean, how is Timothy going to possibly obey everything that's written in this letter, let alone get everybody at the church in Ephesus to obey everything in this letter? I think the, the answer to that question is actually found in the word grace that we find in this last sentence. Grace means God's unmerited favor. You see, God's grace reminds us that we're not called to do any of these things in our own strength or our own wisdom. Because how could Timothy possibly change his own heart? The scriptures teach us that he's not capable of doing that. It's just not possible for him. He can't change the hearts of the people at the church of Ephesus. He can't cause them to believe the gospel or to really see that God is their greatest treasure. He can't do that. Timothy simply isn't wise enough or strong enough. And it's not even just because Timothy's a young pastor, that if Timothy was 90 and he had been pastoring for 60 years, that he would somehow be more capable of doing that. The truth is, we are in need of God's grace. Timothy is dependent on God's divine grace. And what's great about that sentence, that last sentence, is that the word you is actually plural. The word you is plural, so that if we were in the South, that sentence would be read, grace be with y'all. <laughs> grace be with y'all. 
grace be with you all. Because what Paul's saying here is, listen, Timothy, it's not just you that is in need of God's grace. It's the entire church in Ephesus. Everyone needs God's grace. Actually, it's the entire world that needs God's, God's grace. You and I, we've been sitting through this sermon series for months now, but you and I can't obey a single thing that Paul has been teaching us through this letter apart from God's grace. God needs to do in us the things that we cannot do on our own. You and I are in need of God's grace to be with us. So let's wrap up our thoughts for this morning. Three ideas. Our gifts lead us to our giver. We don't find our identity or our security in ourselves or our gifts, but in God alone. He is our identity. He is our security. He will never change. We will never lose him. Once we become his, he will forever be ours. And so our identity and our security is found in Jesus alone. And that when we consider our giver, that it leads us to give. When we begin to believe just how generous God has been to us, it should inevitably lead us to be generous ourselves. So Paul's asking you, what does your generosity look like in your life? And what does your generosity tell you about what you believe about Jesus and the gospel? And then finally, our greatest gift is the giver himself. Above all the things that we own, all the things that we possess, the only thing that we need to cling on to is Jesus and his gospel. In order for us to do any of those things, we are in need of grace. So let's pray that God would give us the grace to believe and to live out all that he has said in this letter. Let's pray.